Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it to the New Testament and Acts chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could grab that Bible in the back part of it, turn to page 98, and you would find yourself at Acts chapter 8. A week ago, we relaunched ourselves into a study of the book of Acts that we've entitled Seeds. Now, we began this study last fall, but we are wading back into it, and it is an exciting study. Uh, It is a pivotal study when it comes to really, truly understanding the New Testament. And as we're in the study of the book of Acts in a fresh way, we need to remember that there's this flow in the book of Acts of plant, scatter, grow, and we're beginning to see that unfolding, the middle part of that, as we move into Acts chapter 8. But it's always important to remember that the book of Acts is an important book of transition. It's a transition between the Old Testament and the Gospels, and the New Testament epistles. And today, as we come in our study of the book of Acts, we're going to come to some verses that are used as proof text, if you will, to prove a certain point. And that point is that not every believer, this is what people like to say, receives the Holy Spirit at the point of belief. There are some people in the Christian community who say, that even those who are followers and believers in Christ, that they need to have a second experience with the Holy Spirit. They need to have a second blessing, that they need something more. And Acts chapter 8 is one of the places they go to emphasize that. In fact, it's really the primary one. Because what we're going to see happen, and we'll go back and look at this in detail, but in, in verse 12 of the chapter, we have the Samaritan people who hear the gospel presented to them, And it says that men and women alike, they believed, they embraced the gospel message, and they were baptized. And then something interesting happens. The word gets back to Jerusalem in verses 14 to 16, and the apostles come down from Jerusalem, and with these new believers in Jesus Christ, they pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit Because it says, even though they had believed and they'd had water baptism, the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. In fact, one well-known Bible teacher from Oklahoma said this regarding these verses. He says, these verses of Scripture help me to see that there is an experience subsequent to salvation called receiving the Holy Ghost. He says, these scriptures show that the Samaritans were saved, yet the apostles didn't seem to think that they had all of the Holy Ghost that there was to have. And so the question for me and the question for you is, do I have all of the Holy Spirit? Do you have all of the Holy Spirit? Do we need some sort of a second experience, some experience that's subsequent to our salvation and trusting in the gospel? I mean, after all, we see this happening to some people here right in the Bible. What is all of this about? Now, the message I've given to today's message is a day at theology school. 
And what we're going to have to do is put on our thinking caps and roll up our Bible study sleeves today. Because we're going to look at an issue that has caused, in the Christian community at large, a lot of misunderstanding. It has caused some spiritual misdirection, and some people have gone off into spiritual detours because of what they're told this passage means for them. So if you're ready to do that, I want to read from chapter 8, verses 5 to 24. I'm going to be reading a rather long portion But I invite you to follow along. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had, for a long time, astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip As he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So we're going to just roll up our Bible study sleeves and put on our thinking cap and spend a little time a day at theology school. And we have a plan for our approach to this section of Scripture. We're going to look at a number of things this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the issue. What is really the issue that's, that we need to address here? Then we're going to look at the background that's all around what's happening here. Uh, Then we're going to look at the gospel impact 
verses 5 to 17. Then we're going to make a theological clarification. And then we're going to finish up this morning by looking at the epilogue of these events in verses 18 to 24. So that's where we're going. Let's begin by focusing first on the issue. Now, when you examine the New Testament, you find out this, that the presence of the Holy Spirit, that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the norm for a believer in Jesus Christ. When we examine the pages of the New Testament, we find out that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the norm for a follower of Jesus. Now, I'm going to refer to a number of passages, but I'm actually going to put them on the screen as I read through them, just to illustrate this from the New Testament. So first of all, from Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 5, it says there, Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. When you examine the New Testament, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the norm for a believer in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.19 he writes to those believers in that church, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? This is the norm in the New Testament for a believer in Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 5, Paul says, God gave to us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as a pledge, as a down payment, a guarantee of our future. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. You see, as you examine the New Testament, this is the norm that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. And then we come to another passage in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. And what this tells us is that the presence of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is one of the primary evidences that someone is in Christ. Paul writes there, and he says, If anyone, anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. Do you see here how the presence of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is a primary evidence that we are in Christ? Christ. That is the norm in the New Testament. So the question is, what in the world is going on in Acts chapter 8? I mean, what's happening here? We see in verse 12, as Philip preaches the gospel, you know, Christ came to die for your sins. He rose again from the dead. You need to believe in that. You need to trust in that. You need to rest in that. As that message came to those Samaritans, it tells us that they believed in that, and they were water baptized based on their confession of faith in Christ. And then days later, we don't know exactly how many days later, the word leaked back to Jerusalem that these events had happened. 
And so they decide to send Peter and John down. Verse 15, they come down and they begin to pray for these new believers in Jesus Christ that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because, verse 16, they had not, he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply believed and been water baptized in the name of the, the Lord Jesus. What, what's going on here? What is going on in Acts chapter 8? Now, this is one of the reasons why understanding that the book of Acts is a book of transition is so critical. Because not everything we see in the book of Acts is repeated in the rest of the New Testament. And if we don't understand that Acts is a book of transition, it will keep us from avoiding a lot of theological error. We must understand this is a book of transition. If we understand that, it will keep us from a lot of spiritual frustration. It will keep us from being victimized by people who turn to a certain passage and try to teach a whole theology based on what is there. So, that is the issue. The second thing we need to do is we need to look at the background. And this becomes very, very important. And we, we began to look at it last week. And the background of the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, again, I said you had to have your thinking cap on, roll up your Bible study sleeves a little bit. It's important for us to understand some historical background at this point. If you know Old Testament history, you will know that the, the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms. There was the ten tribes in the north, and there were the two tribes in the south. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came down, and they took the northern kingdom of Israel. And as was their practice, in order to avoid rebellion, they deported the leading citizens of the northern kingdom and scattered them throughout the Assyrian Empire. That was one of the ways they kept rebellion from happening. If you took the leading influential people, moved them off of their turf and spread them everywhere else, you really didn't have much rebellion. And that's what happened in 722 B.C. Now, now what, what occurred is that some of the lower class was allowed to remain. And what happened is many of those individuals who were Jews intermarried with the Assyrians and, in essence, became half-Jews. Now, keep that in mind. 150 years later, the kingdom of Babylon came in and took the southern kingdom of Judah. In fact, they took a lot of the leading people from Judah and they moved them into exile back in Babylon. And 70 years after that, those who had been taken from the southern kingdom came back into Israel with the goal initially of to rebuild the temple. Now, here's what happened in terms of background. When they returned from Babylon, these full-blooded Jews to come and rebuild the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, some of these people from the northern kingdom who'd intermarried and were now half-Jews racially, they wanted to help rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And they were refused access. We don't want your help, Samaritans. We don't want half-Jews involved in rebuilding the temple. 
in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. So here's what ended up happening historically. The Samaritans, who still embraced Moses and the law, decided to build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And so you had the temple of the Jews rebuilt on Mount Zion, and they built another rival temple on Mount Gerizim. And what happened over the decades is there were these spiritual rivals, the Jews and the Samaritans. And over the years, if you track it, they just spent a lot of time poking one another. I mean, the Jews were looking down on the Samaritans, and the Samaritans resented that someone was looking down on them. And for example, this happened when Jesus was just a child. The Samaritans came into Jerusalem, and on Passover day, they scattered bones around the temple courtyard. You know anything about Jewish law? You know that defiled the temple. Here was Passover, and these Samaritans came in and threw all these bones and defiled the temple. That was just a little poke that was being given. And, and, and it went both ways. The Jews would poke the Samaritans, the Samaritans would poke the Jews. Now, it's important to understand as we unfold all of this background that this was 100% really racially driven. The purebred Jews looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds, as inferior and this background becomes so important. We talked a little bit about this uh, last week. Uh, for example, there's this parenthetical statement made in John chapter 4 and verse 9 where it says, the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And the reverse was true. Samaritans had no dealings with the Jews. And remember, we, we pointed this out on the map just to give you a little bit of orientation, but when you were traveling from Judah where Jerusalem was, to Galilee, where Jesus spent a lot of his ministry, or from Galilee back down to Judea, you'll notice that Samaria is in the middle. And so what they would often do is rather than going through Samaria, because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, Samaritans really want to have no dealings with the Jews, they would go through Decapolis and Perea if they were going south, or they would go through Perea and then Decapolis, they would swing east to avoid Samaria. In fact, there was a popular prayer that would get prayed in Jerusalem, and it went like this. Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. You know, that's the kind of animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. There was this dislike of one another. There was this tension. This had gone on for centuries. Now, I want, to, I want you to turn to one other passage that we're going to look at this morning, go two books to the left to the Gospel of Luke and Luke chapter 9. And we're going to just see an illustration of how this worked. Luke chapter 9, we're going to begin with verse 51. So Jesus and the disciples are in Galilee. They decide they want to go down to Jerusalem. Jesus determined, verse 51, to go to Jerusalem. And so he sent messengers on ahead of them, and they went and they entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for Jesus. This time they decided they weren't going to swing east. They were going to go through Samaria. And basically Jesus says, I need a motel room, I need to stay over, 
and he sent some guys ahead to get the motel room for him. So they sent these messengers, verse 52, ahead of him, and they went and they entered the village of the Samaritans to make these arrangements. But notice verse 53. They, the Samaritans, did not receive Jesus. Why? They didn't like Jesus. They'd heard about Jesus. They'd met Jesus. They didn't want to. No, 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 no. It had nothing to do with that. They did not receive him, verse 53, because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. We know where you guys are going. You're going down to Jerusalem. If you think you're staying here, you know, in this village of the Samaritans at the Holiday Inn, forget it. We don't want your kind here. Keep right on moving down the road. Now, what is fascinating is what happens in verse 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, Lord, would you like to have a big human barbecue right now? Let's just burn them to death. Let's just watch it happen. Would you like us to do that, Lord? That's a little bit of animosity, I think. I notice what Jesus says to him, verse 55, he turned to them and he rebuked them and he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now that little illustration just illustrates the dislike and the tension that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. But you know what's fascinating about the Lord Jesus? The Lord Jesus had a tender spot for Samaritans. Remember when he tells the, the parable story in Luke chapter 10 that we call the, the story of the Good Samaritan? You remember when the guy got mugged and he's laying in the ditch and he's bleeding? And then you have these religious authorities who come by, the Jewish authorities, and they see him laying in the ditch and they just keep right on moving, keep right on going. And then what happens? This Samaritan comes along, and the Samaritan sees the man who's been mugged and beat up, and he, you know, he gives him first aid, and he gives money to the innkeeper. Let's get him healthy. And he becomes the hero of the story. And, and it's like, what? Jesus is telling a story where a Samaritan is the hero? Well, Jesus had a very tender spot for Samaritans. You might remember in John chapter 4, when he's traveling, he, he speaks uh, in midday to a Samaritan woman at the well. She was probably a woman of ill repute. Uh, in those days, you didn't talk to somebody like that out in public, and certainly you wouldn't a Samaritan woman. But Jesus begins to engage her. And it's really interesting to see one of the statements that she makes there in John 4. She says in John 4 to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming. See, the Samaritans had still embraced Moses and, 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 the, and, the, and the law. And she says, I, even though I'm a half-breed, I know that Messiah is coming. Jesus had a tender spot for them. Why do you think that was? Because he was going to die for them too. Not just for full-blooded Jews but also for Samaritans and people like you and me. You know, when you see what's going on between the Jews and the Samaritans, it reminds me very much of today. If you go to the land of Israel and you have this dislike and this tension and this conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. 
And if you were to just take their weapons away from them, it would be very similar to this, as we see in the book of Acts. So that's some background that's very important for us to understand. Now, let's go back into the passage in Acts 8 and begin to look at the gospel impact, what we see actually occurring here. You remember this persecution had had come up in Jerusalem, and so the believers were forced out of there. And in chapter 8, verse 5, Philip, it says, went down to the city of Samaria. Now, if you remember the map, Samaria was on top of Jerusalem, but geographically it was down because Jerusalem was up. And so he goes down to Samaria. And he begins to proclaim Christ to them. He begins to proclaim the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus came and he bled and died on the cross. He rose again triumphant. And you need to believe and trust in him. He proclaimed Christ to them. And and the crowds were giving attention to what he was preaching. And they also were hearing and seeing the signs which he was performing. Jesus was authenticating the message of the gospel by miracles through Philip. And part of what happened is people were being healed and people were being released. Uh, In in verse 8, there was a lot of rejoicing going on. I mean, listen, God's transforming power was visiting the Samaritans. And then you come down to verse 9. And it says, now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city. What we really have in verse 9 and the few verses that follow it is a flashback. It's a flashback to before Philip showed up. It's what was going on in Samaria before Philip got there. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and he was astonishing the people of Samaria. He was claiming to be somebody great, and they all, from the smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. This guy named Simon is what we would call a spiritual charlatan. And for a long time, he'd been performing occultic practices and sorcery, and incandations. And they were buying into it. What's really interesting is that all of those things are forbidden in the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 18, 10 to 12, forbids occultic practices. It forbids sorcery. It forbids incantations. They were embracing of the Old Testament law, and yet here they are captivated by this dude who's violating the book of Deuteronomy. And all of them, from the smallest to the greatest, thought this guy was something. Verse 12 begins with, but. Things began to change. Philip is preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And what happens is men and women, they believe in Jesus. They trust in him as their Messiah and their Savior. And they are water baptized based on their testimony of faith in Christ. And then something very interesting happens in verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. He trusted in Christ too. He believed the message of Jesus being 
his rescuer. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip and he was observing what was happening. So you see these men and women who hear the message of salvation, the gospel message, and it says they believed in it, which is what they were called to do, and they were water baptized. But then somehow the word, we don't know how many days later, gets back to Jerusalem. Had to have been at least two days. And the apostles in Jerusalem decide to send down Peter and John. I want you to just pause for a moment and think about John's perspective about Samaritans from Luke 9. I think we ought to have a barbecue, Lord. Let's just burn them all up. And now, a while later, we have him coming down, and he's very different. Why do you think that is? Remember what the Lord had said to John and to James? The Son of Man did not come to destroy lives but to save them. You don't think that wasn't on John's mind echoing in his brain as he's sent down to Samaria. You're missing it. He had to be thinking about what the Lord had said. He didn't come to destroy lives, but to save them. So verse 15, they come down and they begin praying for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Why do they have to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit? Because... Verse 16, he hadn't yet fallen on any of them. They had believed and embraced the message. They'd even been water baptized. It had been several days, and none of them had the Holy Spirit at all. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they began to lay their hands on them, and they were praying for them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a very different kind of an event in chapter 8 than what happened in Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, when Peter was delivering the message to the full-blooded Jews that were there, when they believed the message, you remember what happened? The Holy Spirit immediately fell on them and came to indwell them. So what is going on? This is different than Acts 2. We know that the norm in the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. What is happening in Acts chapter 8. And that leads us to the theological clarification that we want to make today. And I believe that what we see in Acts chapter 8 is a unique event. It's not repeated in the rest of the book of Acts. It is, if you would, an aberration in this transitional period of the book of Acts. This was a unique event, and there were two reasons for it. Number one, it was a unique event for the benefit of the apostles in the church in Jerusalem. You see, because of this long history that had existed between the Jews, the full-blooded Jews, and the Samaritans, there was a danger that existed. And that is the danger of there being, in the early years of the church, two rival mother churches. 
with two rival worship systems. There was the danger of being the full-blooded Jews' church and also the Samaritans' church. There was a danger of there becoming an additional brand of Christianity, if you would. There was the initial Jewish brand of Christianity and then this other competing brand of Christianity, the Samaritan brand. So for the benefit of the apostles and the church in Jerusalem, God did it this way. He was emphasizing that I have called you into one body. And he's emphasizing that he was building his church singular, not multiple mother churches that would exist. So it was a unique event for the benefit of the apostles and the church in Jerusalem. It was also a unique event for the benefit of the Samaritan believers. I mean, and emphasized to them, hey, we're not second class. We're not being left out. They were affirmed by the fact that it happened in this manner. It was for the benefit also of the Samaritan believers, and they were also brought under apostolic authority. It wasn't going to be another competing authority group. They're all brought together. You remember that Jesus said something very interesting in Matthew chapter 16 to Peter. Not to all of the apostles, but to Peter. He said there, Matthew 16, 19, he says, I am giving to you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom. And what is interesting is, as you track your way through this book of transition, as the church begins to become the church, In each pivotal new extension of the church, it is attended by, guess who? Peter. When you're in Acts chapter 2, it's Peter who opens the doors to the Jews at Pentecost as he delivers the message. Here in Acts chapter 8, it's Peter who opens the door to the Samaritans to be full participants in this new thing called the church. And as we're going to see when we get to Acts chapter 10, it is Peter who opens the door to welcome the very first Gentiles into this new thing that Jesus is building called the church. You see, what happens in Acts chapter 8 is not the norm. The norm is that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. What we see in Acts 8 is a special induction, if you would, in an era of transition. It is never repeated in the book of Acts or any place else. In fact, when we get to Acts chapter 10 and Peter preaches the message to the Gentiles who believe, you know what happens? The Holy Spirit immediately falls on them and indwells them. This is a unique event that inaugurates the Samaritans into the body of Christ. Now, a failure to understand that will lead a person to make faulty conclusions. A failure to understand that will lead a person to bad doctrine, such as you need to have some kind of a second experience with the Holy Spirit. You need something more. We, men and women, don't need a second experience. We don't need something more. In fact, Peter, when he wrote his second letter, chapter 1, verse 3, says to us as believers that his divine power has granted to us 
everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's the norm that when we trust Christ as Savior, He grants to us the indwelling spirit and everything pertaining to life and godliness, all the resources we need to live this life we're called to is given to us at the moment of faith. It always just, frankly, irks me when someone makes a statement like we read from earlier. They didn't seem to have all the Holy Ghost that there was to have. What kind of a strange statement is that? You know, you know, that kind of a statement belies that someone is looking at the Holy Spirit like the Holy Spirit is some sort of a force. Did you get all the force? Part of the force? The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. They didn't seem to have all of the Holy Spirit that there was that. What? You mean you got the, the, the left leg and the left arm? But you didn't get, it doesn't work that way. He is a person, not a force. Well, all of that leads us then to the epilogue as we see it in verses 18 to 24. And as we take a look at these verses very quickly, you know, the key question for an interpreter is this. Was Simon a believer or was Simon a pretender? Now, again, look back at verse 12. It says that there were these men and women of Samaria, and Philip was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and they believed. And based on their belief, they were baptized, men and women alike. They believed the gospel, and they were baptized. They were clearly saved. When Peter and John came, they received the Holy Spirit. Now, look at verse 13 again. It says, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, continued on with Philip. Now, there are many, many, trust me, excellent Bible interpreters who would say, Simon was a pretender. He was never a believer at all. But I kind of find it fascinating that the exact same vocabulary is used to describe the Samaritans as is used to describe Simon. They believed the gospel and they were baptized. Simon himself believed the gospel and he was baptized. It doesn't say Simon claimed to be a believer or he claimed to believe. Now, we know, it goes on to say in verse 17, that they began to put their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. It never tells us that Simon received the Holy Spirit. We don't really know what happened there. But notice what happens with Simon. In verse 18, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the hands of the apostles, he offered him money. Guys, I got money here. He says, give me this authority as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands might receive the Holy Spirit. I think he saw an opportunity to regain his exalted celebrity status in Samaria. And he said, I'm willing to pay the money to get the authority to do that. By the way, we have a, a vocabulary word that is invented based on this historical event. It's called simony. It's the word Simon with a Y on the end. 
And throughout centuries in church history, people have practiced simony. That is, they've, they've sought to purchase privileges or to purchase pardons or to purchase religious offices with cash. It all tracks back to what Simon does right here. And you'll notice in verse 20 that Peter delivers to him a very strong rebuke. May your silver perish with you. That word perish is a strong word. But it could refer to the loss of physical life. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. By the way, you know what I think is happening here, in my personal opinion? I think we see the third attempt in the early stages of the church for Satan to poison the new church from within. Do you remember the first time happens in chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira where Satan seeks to introduce hypocrisy into the church? By the way, we've had a lot of hypocrisy in the church over the generations. It, It all started there. And then the second time it happened, it was in Acts chapter 6, where he sought to introduce conflict into the church. Anyone ever heard about conflict in the church? Well, it all went back to Acts chapter 6, where there was trying to be this conflict over the distribution of the financial funds to the various widows' groups. And here we see the third attempt by Satan to poison the new church from within by introducing bribery into the church, simony into the church all for the purpose of self-exaltation and self-promotion. And you notice he goes on to say to him, verse 21, you have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness. Pray that the Lord, if possible, pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, and in the bondage of iniquity. That little phrase, the gall of bitterness, this is the way the New American Standard and the ESV translated. is a very interesting little phrase. It's an idiom. It's an idiom that means to be overly envious of another person. We could translate it bitterly envious. I see that you are bitterly envious and you are in the bondage of iniquity. You are captured by sin in your heart. And he's basically saying to him, you are in danger of being disciplined by God. You are in danger of being judged by God. Now, we we might be able to say this. Simon is the Ananias and Sapphira of Samaria. And you know what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, right? God just took them right out of this physical life. And that is the threat that Simon is hearing Verse 24, so Simon said, hey, would you guys pray for this too so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me? Fascinating passage of Scripture that needs to be properly understood. Now, I want to draw, as we close today, three quick lessons. What can we learn from Acts chapter 8 that we've seen so far? Well, the first lesson is this. You don't need something more. I don't care who is telling you that, what passages they may try to quote from, you don't need something more. 
He, the moment we trust in Christ, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. All the spiritual resources we ever need to live this life he's called us to are provided for us at the moment of trusting in Christ. You don't need something more. The moment you hear someone telling you that you do, you need to run the opposite direction. Second lesson I believe we can learn from this, and this is frankly very encouraging to me, and that is that God can mightily use one person. I mean, think about just one guy. And Philip had the opportunity to, have, to influence a whole culture of people. You know, the same thing has happened in church history. You think of J. Hudson Taylor. He was the key person who influenced China. God can mightily use one person to influence a culture, to influence a city, to influence a neighborhood. Yes, to influence a family. God wants to use you, and he wants to use me. So the question is, where does he want to use you? God can mightily use just one person. Then the third lesson is this, that the power is in the gospel. The power is in the gospel. A lot of times we see these miracles and we think, oh, if we just had the miracles, the miracles were all the power and all. The miracles were confirming the message, but the power is in the message. You know, in John chapter 12 and verse 30, Jesus was performing many signs among them, yet they were not believing in him. See, the power is not in the miracles. The power is in the message. And it is the gospel that has the power to transform someone's heart, to transform their life, to alter their eternal destiny. The power is in the gospel. And what is so exciting to me is we hold it in our hands. And there's people who need to hear it. There's people who are ready to see their heart transformed, their life transformed, their eternal destiny altered, and God has put that message right in our hands. The power is in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for a passage of Scripture like this. We thank you for teaching us through it. We thank you so much we don't really need anything more. All that we need pertaining to life in God and as you give to us the moment we trust in Christ. And Father, we would pray that any who would hear our voice who don't understand, have ever come into direct relationship with Christ, would understand that He, the gospel message that talks about Him, is the key to transforming a heart and a life and altering a destiny. Father, we just thank You that Jesus is the light of the world. We're, we're so grateful that He is the one that we can look to, that He is the one that we run to by faith. What a great thing it is to know Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. 